In part two of our Federal Circuit podcast series, we take a look at four noteworthy patent cases that have recently been decided by the court and discuss their potential impact on IP law. Joining us are Finnegan partners Dory Hines and Mike Flibbert. Dory, one of the most notable cases in recent months is Biosig versus Nautilus. What are the main takeaways from the Federal Circuit's decision here? Well, the main takeaways are two. One is that patentees can expect challenges to the definiteness of their claims. They can expect more serious challenges, typically in cases where definiteness or indefiniteness was an issue. Parties would press those challenges, and ultimately they would fall by the wayside. I think patentees can now expect that those challenges will be pushed further and harder before the courts, and the courts will issue decisions on them. A second takeaway from that decision is for patent practitioners who draft specifications and draft claims. That's where Nautilus really should be taken into account by patent holders. Care should be taken in defining claim terms and doing it clearly in the patent specification and doing it consistently during the prosecution history. There are two types of claim terms that both defendants and patent owners should be looking for for either patent challenges or to be challenged on. And those are terms of degree, words like substantially and close, things that provide no inherent definition in and of themselves. Those types of terms should be defined clearly in the specification or in the prosecution history so that the construer of claims, the court, will know what they mean. The second type of term may be even more problematic, and that is subjective claim terms. An example of this was just considered by the Federal Circuit very recently, and that was the claim term unobtrusive manner. Something was situated so that it was in an unobtrusive manner. Well, that type of term can mean different things to different people. It doesn't have one clear and definite definition in and of itself. So those types of terms terms of degree and subjective terms are going to be more subject to attack and potentially successful attack now with the more relaxed standard in the Nautilus case. Mike, another closely watched case was Consumer Watchdog versus Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. Why was this case so significant? This case shows that in some circumstances, a party may be able to challenge a patent at the patent office, but if the challenge is unsuccessful, be unable to appeal to the federal circuit. Here, a a nonprofit public charity known as Consumer Watchdog filed a request for inter-parties re-examination of a patent relating to human embryonic cell cultures. The Patent Office ruled against Consumer Watchdog and found the claims patentable. Consumer Watchdog then appealed to the federal circuit, but the court dismissed the appeal, holding that Consumer Watchdog had not shown an injury in fact sufficient to confer Article III standing. So even though the statute provided a right of appeal, the court held that such a procedural right did not obviate the constitutional requirement for standing for federal court jurisdiction. So as a result of this decision, consumer or public interest groups, industry groups, and trade associations that challenge patents before the patent office on behalf of their members may be unable to appeal if they lose. Even a company that challenges a competitor's patent before the patent office may face a standing issue on appeal if it's not involved in any research or commercial activities relating to the subject matter of the patents without some potential infringement liability 
or dispute over license royalties or some other concrete injury, the Federal Circuit may dismiss the appeal for lack of jurisdiction. Back to you here, Dory. The technology industry has been closely following Apple versus Vernetics. Can you give us some insight into what this case means for patent owners and challengers? Yes, the industry has been following the case closely and will continue to do that now. In that case, Vernetics sued Apple for infringement. The infringing products were Apple's iPod, iPad, Mac computers, and iPhones. The jury down in the Eastern District of Texas had awarded Vernetics $368 million in damages, and that issue and that large damages award was considered by the Federal Circuit on Appeal. So the main issue and the fundamental issue for patentees and defendants in the technology space of electrical and computer inventions, the Federal Circuit provided guidance in that area, how a patentee can show damages with respect to an individual component or a portion of a multi-component system. Now, the district courts have been wrestling with that issue for some time. How is it to assess patent damages when the accused product, for example, a personal computer, has a single component or portion of it that's asserted to infringe. Now, the Federal Circuit earlier in in Laser Dynamics explained that damages are recoverable based on what it called the smallest saleable patent practicing unit. So what does that mean? Well, district courts have disagreed on that. And whether once you find the smallest saleable patent practicing unit, there needs to be any further division or apportionment of that smallest saleable patent practicing unit to determine your royalty base. The Federal Circuit's now answered that question and said yes. Further apportionment may be required. In Vernetics, the patentee argued that the iPod, for example, was the smallest saleable patent practicing unit. As a result, the royalty base should be the sales price of the iPod and that Vernetics was entitled to a percentage of that sales revenue. Decreasing that royalty base to make it more closely tied to what the patent claims is the essential issue the Federal Circuit decided in the Vernetics case. And what the Federal Circuit said was that you can determine the smallest saleable patent practicing unit, but if that is not closely tied to what's claimed, then further apportionment will be required. The takeaway is that parties accused of infringement may now have or will now have an additional and substantial challenge to high royalty bases and high damages awards. For patentees, a fundamental takeaway is that they will need to more closely tie the royalty base, that is, the the base amount from which they say they are entitled damages, to what is specifically claimed in the patent. Now, the second issue in Vernetics was that the damages expert relied on the Nash bargaining solution in two of his damages theories. Now, under that theory, parties in a negotiation will generally agree to a 50-50 split of profits. And the damages expert for the patentee, Vernetics, relied on that theory in asserting two of his damages theories. And the Federal Circuit said that was inappropriate and analogized the Nash bargaining solution to the 25% rule, which it rejected a few years ago in the Unilock case. The Federal Circuit didn't go so far as to completely reject the Nash bargaining solution, but it did say that if it's going to be used, specifics 
of the case must be considered and the damages expert must explain why the theorem applies to the specific situation in that case. The Vernetics decision follows on in a line of cases where the Federal Circuit has been more closely analyzing and disagreeing with very large damages awards in the electrical and mechanical area. The takeaway for patentees is they need to do more, they need to show more, tying the specifics of what is claimed to their damages arguments. And the takeaway for defendants is they should continue to challenge early and substantively the damages theories of the plaintiff. And finally, Mike, the Federal Circuit recently affirmed a finding of inequitable conduct in Apotex versus UCB. What is the potential impact of this decision on IP? I take away two main points. First, the decision shows that inequitable conduct remains a viable defense in appropriate circumstances. In fact, it it starkly shows how inequitable conduct can be a very powerful defense uh, because unlike non-infringement or patent invalidity defenses, which are adjudicated on a claim-by-claim basis, A finding of inequitable conduct renders the entire patent unenforceable and eliminates any right of recovery. And the district court here, for example, had decided a number of other issues, but the Federal Circuit held that it didn't even have to address them uh, once it affirmed the finding of inequitable conduct. So I think that's the first major point, that inequitable conduct is really alive and well in the right circumstances. It remains viable. The second point I would take away is that the decision shows that the Federal Circuit and the district courts are particularly likely to find inequitable conduct when they see a pattern of misconduct. And the Federal Circuit's opinion recounts in in really excruciating detail the multiple bad acts that occurred here, which included misrepresenting the nature of a prior art product, mischaracterizing a prior art publication, and withholding other material prior art, failing to inform an expert of the true facts, which resulted in the submission of a misleading and false declaration, and lying in a patent application by including examples of experiments that were never actually conducted. And the court referred to this uh, repeated misconduct as a pattern of lack of candor. So I would say whether you're on the plaintiff's side or the defendant's side of a case, I'd strongly suggest that you keep an eye out for any possible patterns of misconduct. Our guests have been Mike Flibbert and Dory Hines, partners at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.